All right. Happy Lord's Day. This is a great way to start, their we- start our week. So we're going to uh, do something a little bit different today. Um, we'll pray in just a moment, but last week we started in, we started Module 4, Session 3, Soteriology Number 3, The Doctrine of Election. And we got partway through, and we'll, we, I already knew we were going to do that. But the question was asked, and it's as good a time as any um, to use this right now. The question was asked, what about Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, which says, it seems to say that it's possible to be a Christian and then not be a Christian. Um, what, what does that mean? How, how does that impact election? So I decided um, to kind of go off the rails completely, and we're just going to do Hebrews 6 today. Um, I'd like to spend some time doing that, and I really kind of want to just, if you're okay with this, I kind of want to preach a sermon on this, because Hebrews 6 is one of the most important passages in all the New Testament. So how does this relate to the doctrine of election? It relates in that what you'll see is that the elect are saved, they always will be, and, but it is possible to be a fraud. It is possible to uh, look like a Christian and even to fool yourself into thinking you're one without it actually being true. This is not my opinion. I'm just going to show you this is what the Bible says um, completely. So let's pray, and then we're going to, um, well, I guess we'll call this Module 4, Session 3, Dash Off the Rails. That's what we'll call it. So, and looking at the doctrine of election from that standpoint. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to begin the Lord's day in the Word of God. And we, we thank you for the truth of the Word. It is a light. It is a fire. It is a double-edged sword. All of the things that Scripture says of itself, it is the ultimate source of truth. It is the only way that we know our God. It is the only revelation that we have of God. And it is certainly the only way that we know your requirements of us. And you require that we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that we would see that today, that the truth of your word would do what Psalm 119 says, to be a, a, a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. Lord, we pray that that would be the case today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I, I, know, that, uh, I know that jumping right into preaching on a Sunday is kind of like jumping into cold water, but I want to have you turn with me to Hebrews 6. And I want to talk to you about, um, I think we'll call this the immediate danger of unbelief. And I'll explain why it's the immediate danger later. And what Hebrews 6 is going to show us is the human responsibility side of salvation. We talked last time about some of the misnomers about the doctrine of election. And one of the misnomers, one of the misunderstood aspects is that that people tend to think that it's a, a fatalism of some sort. That it's just, you're just floating along and you have no responsibility and, and that's why some have rejected this doctrine because they feel it's fatalistic, but it's not. It is utterly God's doing that anyone is saved and yet humans have a responsibility. And so how do those work together? Those are two parallel train tracks in the Bible that never cross. We're simply to understand both those truths. And so we're going to do the human responsibility side today. But the question is that the Hebrews 6 really answers, is it possible to make a profession of faith? Is it possible to have claimed to be a Christian for months or years or decades or even a lifetime and yet not actually be in Christ? Is it possible to see people around you 
whose lives change? Is it possible to sing the songs of our faith? Is it possible to witness the work of God and many others? Is it possible, you ready for this, to even enjoy the preaching of the Bible and yet to eventually walk away from the faith and be exposed as a fraud? Is that possible? The Apostle John thinks so. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Paul thinks so. 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to church members. Jesus thinks so. He said in Matthew seven twenty one, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And the writer of Hebrews thinks so, that it is possible to be a fraudulent believer. And that is our text today, Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. And let me just give you a little bit of background so you understand. Hebrews is, a, is one of the most interesting books in the New Testament. And as the title suggests, it's written to Jewish Christians, but it's also written to Jews who have previously claimed faith in Christ, but they're being tempted to fall away. Now, let me be very clear. Not in the sense of losing your salvation. That is impossible. 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You can't undo that. Not in the sense of losing your salvation, but they're being tempted to fall away in the sense of not having ever come fully to the faith, not having fully repented. Let me put it in terms we can understand. Hebrews is partially written to people who attend church and are still considering the faith. And they've been going long enough to fool themselves into thinking that they're Christians just because they're around a bunch of other Christians. And so Hebrews is is aimed at them very pointedly. There's strong evidence that this letter was originally written to the Jews in the city of Rome. And this would make a lot of sense because persecution was heating up in the Roman Empire when this letter was written. And so being a Christian was dangerous. And in fact, what was a really safe thing to be uh, for one of the very rare times in history, it was safe during the, the era that Hebrews was written, not right before, but during this era, it was safer to be a Jew than it was to be a Christian. And so a Jew, considering coming to full faith in Jesus Christ, was being tempted to say, you know, I think I'm just going to hang back because it's safer. And we said this a lot during uh, the, the majority of the COVID crisis, that Christianity is anything but a safe faith. There's no such thing as a safe Christian. We live in a world that hates Christ. And so uh, there's no such thing as being a Christian safely. So that's what they're tempted. In fact, in chapter 5, the author warns those who are not fully in Christ that they're in danger. Verse 11, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. 
he's saying you've become spiritually hard-hearted and ignorant. And, and I can relate to this as a pastor. In this pulpit, I have watched individuals for years reject and deny the word of God and glaze over when the Bible is open, and yet they show up every week. I don't understand that exactly. If, if I'm going to reject Christ, I may as well go play golf. But they keep coming to church. And the book of Hebrews says that that class of people exists. So what's the solution to this hard-heartedness and this ignorance? The writer presents the solution in chapter 6. So let me read to you chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And here's, the, here's kind of the, the key text here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." And so the writer presents this solution to spiritual hard-heartedness and to ignorance. And I, I've divided this into kind of a three-part solution. It's very simple. Stop avoiding Christ, stop fooling yourself, and stop waiting. Stop avoiding Christ, stop fooling yourself, and stop waiting. And I'll walk through these one at a time. The first part of the solution to spiritual dullness, to this hard-heartedness for a false believer, is stop avoiding Christ. And we see this in the first three verses. Verse 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, we want to be very clear here. When Paul says, go on to maturity, it's a mistake to think that he's simply speaking to immature baby believers. That's not what he's talking about. He's speaking to those who have heard the gospel, they've learned the gospel, they've considered the gospel, and yet they haven't matured. They haven't come to full saving faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we want to be very clear here. I think this is often misunderstood. The writer isn't telling Christians to leave the elementary truths of the gospel. I've actually heard this preached, that that the cross and the resurrection, those are the basics of the faith. We need to move on to other things like miracles and power and wealth and all of that. That's a wrong interpretation. The writer is writing to Jews, and he's telling them to leave. It's a Hebrew word that means forsake, get away from. The elementary, and listen, the beginning, that's what it means, the beginning doctrine of Christ. Where would a Jew find the elementary or the beginning doctrine of Christ? In the Old Testament. Now, we fully affirm that Christ is taught in the Old Testament, right? We, we, you're, we're clear about that here. But they were stuck there. They were stuck in the Old Covenant. They were staying only there. How does the book of Hebrews begin? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets clearly speaking to Jews. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's brand new information. And He's saying, stop going back to Malachi and trying to dig out truth that we already know. He's not saying don't go to the Old Testament, but don't get stuck there. The Old Testament contains the shadows, the prophecies, the the pictures, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, which simply all point to Christ. They all point to the cross. And so the writer is saying, stop looking only at the picture of Christ and go to Christ himself. Imagine this, being married, and you're sitting right next to your spouse, and with a tear in your eye, you're staring at the picture of your spouse. I just love this picture. I I love this picture so much. And your spouse is going, hello, put the picture down. I'm right here. That's what he's telling them. The author continues, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. What is repentance? It is turning away from wickedness, turning away from sin. That's what brings spiritual death. Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The repentance of the Old Testament, the repentance of the Old Covenant, was that one was to turn away from evil and turn to Yahweh, turn to God on the basis of the promise of a Savior yet to come. That's what repentance in the Old Testament, that's the information they had, I'm saved by faith in God. And yes, those who knew their Bible and studied prophecy would know that there's a Messiah yet to come, but that wouldn't necessarily be common knowledge. But with the coming and revealing of Jesus Christ, it isn't enough just to say, as the last part of verse 1 says, that I have faith in God. Now, under the new covenant, repentance is absolutely pointless without faith in Christ. It is impossible, the writer is saying, to be saved apart from Christ. That you can't say, well, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. Then you don't believe in God. And so no matter how sincerely, no matter how earnestly someone seeks to repent of sin and to turn to God without Christ, it'll never happen. It can't happen. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, the implication is through him only, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, salvation is through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 1, salvation is in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 15, salvation through faith in Christ. What did Jesus say about himself in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in fact, in, in Greek, it's the, the definite article is, is emphasized. I am the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father except through what? Me. There's no other way. So it does no good, the writer's telling them, to have faith in God if there's no faith in Christ. There is no acceptable repentance outside of repentance to Christ. It doesn't exist. The writer of Hebrews says further in verse 2 to leave instructions about washings. This is not speaking of Christian baptism. In fact, some have said, well, this means that you don't have to be baptized once you're saved, that baptism is, is optional. That, that's so far from missing the point, it would take me an hour to explain how bad that is. But this isn't speaking of Christian baptism. This is a different word than is normally used for baptism. 
This is speaking of ceremonial cleansing demanded by the Old Testament law. Let me put it this way. Every Jewish family from from the wealthiest to the poorest had some type of basin of water for the family and for guests to use in ceremonial washing. It was a representative of being clean before the Lord. But the writer of Hebrews says, leave this behind. Why do you need the symbol when you have the real thing? Even the Old Testament itself says that the ceremonial cleansing, which represents spiritual cleansing, is going to be replaced. It's going to be taken out. Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. What's the context of Ezekiel 36? The coming new covenant in Christ. When the the day would come when the Holy Spirit would reside within true believers. And this is reflected in the New Testament concept of regeneration. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Here it is, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what's the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying, stop worrying about how much water is supposed to be in the basin. What kind of basin should you have? Should it be near the front door? Should it be near the back door? Should it be in the kitchen? Should it be at the dining room table? Uh, Should the water be cleansed? Uh, Should it come from a stream? Should it come from a well? Should you get it from a mud puddle? What kind of water should you use? He says, forget all that. Go to Christ. Drink the water, whatever you need to do. But go to Christ. And of course, the indwelling and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit is made possible only by Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 26, that the Spirit of God would be sent in the name of Christ to all believers. Well, he goes on to say then that they should leave teaching about the laying on of hands. Now in the New Testament, the apostles used the practice of laying on of hands to ordain and commission men uh, who served in the church. We still do that today. This isn't what the author is speaking of. When he talks about the laying on of hands, he's speaking of the Old Testament practice of laying your hands on an animal that was about to be sacrificed on your behalf in order to identify symbolically with that sacrifice. That this animal, you are, as it were, transferring your sin to this animal and that that animal dies on your behalf. But they had to do it over and over again because animals cannot give salvation and so the animal is dying for my transgression this act says to pay the blood guilt that i've accrued since the last time i sacrificed leviticus 1 4 gives this instruction the laying on of hands on the burnt offering that's about to be killed and the writer's saying move on from this christ has come don't 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 lay your hands on a sacrifice lay your hands on christ he made atonement once for all And then he continues to leave the elementary doctrine, leave behind the elementary doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Now, the Old Testament does contain a resurrection theology, but it's limited. It's not developed. It's enough for the Old Testament saint to know that there is a life to come. Um, Even Psalm 23, that I will dwell in your house forever. But we don't have a lot more information from that. But now Jesus came and gives us a whole new twist. There's not just a a knowledge of some sort of resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Totally different way of thinking. Jesus raised the dead to demonstrate that he is the resurrection and he raised himself from the dead to demonstrate that he's the resurrection. And in the New Testament, our resurrection is inextricably bound. It's linked. It's tied to 
the resurrection of Christ. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. There is this, this connection between the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection. So why would anyone try to understand resurrection from the partial teaching of the Old Testament when Christ shouts the resurrection? So he's saying that doesn't make sense. And those on the fence spiritually here, the hard-hearted, they were to leave behind elementary teaching, verse 2, of eternal judgment. And what does he mean by that? Again, we don't learn a lot about eternal judgment in the Old Testament. Probably the most New Testament-sounding text in the Old Testament in this regard is Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. But in the New Testament, this is fleshed out. And in fact, we learn who the judge is. In the New Testament, John 5, 22, Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to whom? To the Son. It's to Him. And in fact, in the New Testament, we learn the judicial positive consequences for faith and to whom we owe thanks. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment, no fear of the future, for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that not a single sin you've ever committed will ever be held against you if you're in Christ. And so what's the writer trying to say here? In trying to stay with elementary teaching, what he's saying is what you're trying to do is really avoid confronting and meeting and encountering Jesus Christ, the only one who can possibly be your savior. That's the writer's solution to spiritual hard-heartedness. Stop avoiding Christ. The second part of the solution, stop fooling yourself. Stop fooling yourself. The author says in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. He's basically saying, I'll keep teaching if God permits you to, to listen and to repent. We will move on. We will keep going because now he's going to say with this, uh, this little conjunction here, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and we're going to go through this, the author is going to here present five resources that the false believer has had at his disposal, five benefits, but these are exactly the things that have fooled them and led them to believe that they're in Christ when they're not. Led them to believe that they're right before God. And I want to just say this up front. These five resources, the way they're phrased here particularly and specifically, None of these five anywhere else in the New Testament is ever used to speak of a, of a Christian. Not one of them. They sound very Christian-y. They sound very spiritual, as we'll see. But none of these phrases in the specificity of this phrasing here in Greek, none of them is ever used to describe a Christian. Somebody who's been regenerate. Here are the five resources. They were enlightened. They were enlightened. Verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Again, this is not speaking of salvation. Jesus made it very clear, of, of losing your salvation rather. Jesus made it very clear in John 10 that not one saved person will be lost. That He is abundantly clear about that. Not one regenerate person becomes unregenerate. And to our topic of election, not one elect person becomes unelect. It's impossible. So what is this? What does it mean to have been enlightened? 
that they've had intellectual exposure to spiritual truth. They've received knowledge. They've seen the light of Christ from a distance. They've heard the light of the gospel. And you might say, well, well then they, they're saved, right? Because they're, they're in the midst of the truth. Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth and Jesus taught about himself from the Old Testament and he basically said, I'm here now. I'm here now. And the people that he had grown up around tried to murder him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. How, you can't get any closer to Christ than literally being in the same room with him. And yet they tried to murder him. They had been enlightened, but seeing God's light and receiving God's light are two different things. So you can learn all you want, but that doesn't make you a believer. There's a second resource. They were exposed. They were exposed. Verse 4, they tasted the heavenly gift. Again, that's not a phrase that's ever used of the Christian. The text doesn't specify what the heavenly gift is, but the most likely candidate is simply Christ and salvation. That is the heavenly gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the what? The gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. In other words, they've tasted, they've sampled. The gift was just tested, not lived out, not fully gulped, not fully received. How far do you have to go? Jesus made a shocking statement to all the skeptical around him in John 6, beginning in verse 53. He said, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you in other words you can't just taste christ you have to consume him and be consumed by him the false believers had toyed with salvation they had watched others be saved they 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 saw the benefits and the fruit of lives that have been changed and they just sort of joined the parade just kind of got in behind the band but they weren't playing an instrument so to speak so they were enlightened, they were exposed as a third resource. They were witnesses. They were witnesses. It says that, the, the writer says, you have shared in the Holy Spirit. Shared is a word that means participated in or associated with. Associated with. Let me give you something we all understand. You're around somebody famous for 30 seconds. What do we do now? You whip out your cell phone and you lean over and you take a selfie, right? Because it makes it look like, aside from the fact that your arm looks like it's nine feet long and everybody knows you don't really know that person, but for 30 seconds, it makes it look like, yeah, I'm here with my, my good buddy, you know, the, the governor of the state of Minnesota. He just happened to be in town. He's, he's my pal. That's not really true. It's association. Put it this way. Someone else has made the campfire and you sneak into the camp to feel the warmth. But it was never your fire. You've seen the changed lives of those who did possess the Spirit of God as born-again believers. But we should be really clear. The Bible never says Christians are associated with the Holy Spirit. Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We're changed by the Holy Spirit. Christians are the only people on earth who possess the Spirit of God and who behave in a, in a manner uh, befitting that. They're the greatest people in the world to be around. Not perfect. We're still being perfected. God is being formed in us. Christ in us. Galatians 4. And even the unbeliever 
can enjoy this fellowship, enjoy the feeling of being around Christians who are truly worshiping Christ, and that can fool them. I like being around these people. I like the feeling of being around those whose lives are changed, and they can fool themselves they can fool themselves as merely witnesses of the power of the Holy Spirit into thinking that they're recipients of the power of the Holy Spirit when they're not. So they were enlightened, they were exposed, they were witnesses. There was a fourth resource. They were taught. They were taught, verse 5, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. Now, the usual word in Greek for word is that which emphasizes the whole counsel of God, the, the, the Bible, start to finish, the, the totality, the plurality of the word of God. But this particular word is different. It speaks of pieces, individual parts, Phrases, statements, sentences, little pieces. In other words, these people have heard the word of God as bits and pieces of interesting and even inspiring information, but have never put the whole picture together. That the scriptures tell a redemptive story that all point to Christ. Jesus said to Jews who were trying to kill him, In John 5, 39, he said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So who is this person? This is the person who has spent months or years in the church. They maybe have listened to thousands of sermons. They've enjoyed some. They've been critical of most. But they keep coming back. They keep gaining knowledge. And the more they know the more they fool themselves into believing that they've, they're, they're in Christ. I've had unbelievers tell me, and they openly say, I, I don't think I'm a Christian, but I really love listening to your sermons. I don't know how to take that exactly. I'm not sure what that really means. But I have had the opportunity to tell some, then you're in danger. You're in big time danger because you're enjoying the word of God without coming to the God of the word, without coming to the cross. You're just tasting. You're not eating. So they were enlightened. They were exposed. They were witnesses. They were taught. One more resource they had. They were astounded. They were astounded. It says that they've seen the powers of the age to come. This is speaking, the age to come is speaking of the future kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom's miraculous power that will be normal, that will be routine in the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. They saw the miracles performed by the apostles, spoken of earlier in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. These are the ones who saw Jesus raise people from the dead, They saw him give sight to the blind. They saw him give hearing to the deaf. They saw him heal the terminally ill, and yet they rejected him. These are the people who have been enlightened, exposed. They've been witnesses. They've been taught. They've been astounded. They've seen the light of Christ. They've seen the benefits of salvation. They've seen the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the word of God. And they've even been astounded by the miraculous signs of the authenticity of the apostles' message. They had tremendous resources. What more could God give them? Nothing. Nothing. They're in the very best possible position to repent 
And so they needed to stop fooling themselves. There's one more part to the solution to hard-heartedness. Stop avoiding Christ. Stop fooling yourself. The author of Hebrews would tell us also, stop waiting. Stop waiting. In verse 4, he says, It is impossible for those who have had all these resources and then still reject the gospel, verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. This is serious stuff. Because the unbeliever, he says, is in danger of losing the opportunity to be saved. This goes against worldly uh, so-called wisdom that says, well, I'll make myself right with God at the end of my life. This says you won't have that chance. You will not have that opportunity. If they reject Christ and the gospel at the most vital point of knowledge and conviction, while they're steeped in the truth, while they're part of the church, then there's no hope for them. In fact, what they're doing, verse 6, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. New American Standard says, putting Him to open shame. They're humiliating Christ. Why? Because they've been, and I know this is a, a, a hot topic today, but think of this in the positive sense, they've been vaccinated by the gospel. They've been given just enough to be immune to actual salvation. They have heard enough truth to believe that they are, they are fine. And the longer they resist, the more resistant he'll become. What does it mean that they're crucifying once again the Son of God? What does that mean? Well, the phrase that they're holding him to contempt helps us interpret this. For the Jew tempted to turn back to Judaism, it meant that they decided that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And listen carefully. If you decided that Jesus was not the Messiah, the only alternative position is to believe that he deserved to die. That's the only alternative. And with all the evidence listed before them in verses 4 and 5, they judged Jesus to be a fraud. They held him in contempt. It's a word that means they believed he is guilty. And so they turn it around and they are judging the one who is the judge. And now the one that Jesus tells us will say to him, Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment, they're the ones who, given the chance, would have said, crucify him, crucify him. They would have. You know what this person is just like? We have an example. His name is Judas. Judas was enlightened. He tasted the heavenly gift. He saw the power of the Holy Spirit. He heard the word of God from the mouth of God himself. And he saw the miraculous powers of the age to come. It is arguable that there are only 11 other men who have ever lived who saw more miracles than than Judas did. He was right at the top. And he still betrayed Jesus to the cross. Listen to Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? We don't think about the Spirit of God being outraged. But the Spirit of God is outraged when you know the truth of Christ and you judge him guilty anyway. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The admonition to the person on the verge of this category is to stop waiting. And and listen, it's not just that the false believer might die tonight or tomorrow. 
it's that he might be rendered permanently lost while still in this life. That's the danger. That the longer someone stays on the brink, the more he learns, the more he's fooling himself. He lists his resume in his own mind of all the things that he thinks he thinks proves that he's a Christian. Well, I've done good things. I've, I've been in church. I've, I've listened to sermons. I've, I've sung the songs. I've done all those things. I don't think it's always a purposeful and a conscious decision to reject Christ. But we have to be very clear. Someone who doesn't, le- doesn't openly oppose the gospel, but is tolerant of the gospel, what does Jesus say about them? Whoever is not with me is against me. Matthew twelve thirty. So it's a mistake to believe that if you aren't outwardly against Christ that you're safe. That's not, that's not true. The idea of taking longer to consider Christ is only valid for one type of person. Of taking a moment. And that's the one who just was exposed to the truth of the gospel for the first time. And is taking a breath and saying, I've never heard this before. This is not this person. This is the person who's heard it for years and years and years. And has rejected it. This is terrifying. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, not sinning in the little ways of life, but what he means sinning by rejecting the gospel, rejecting Christ, not coming fully to faith. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, the cross of Christ may no longer be applied to you. That is off the table. What's the, what's the opposite? But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I know it's popular in our culture to say, well, God is a God of love, and that is true. He's also a God of justice. And it is a biblical fact that there is a point in time that God will, in the, in the halls of heaven, in the record books of heaven, point at various people and say, that man is now unsavable. And I will not save him. No grace. Grace is done. He cannot sing amazing grace. He cannot think of grace. He cannot ask for mercy. He has been prevented. Why? Because he's heard the gospel over and over and over again. You see why when we talked about the doctrine of election, that God doesn't just send people to hell willy-nilly. People who go to hell are the ones who heard the truth and rejected it time and time and time and time again. They are culpable. They are responsible. A fearful expectation. And this section closes with a a very clear illustration. Like all the biblical writers, he illustrates truth. Verse 7, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. This is a, a little mini parable about Land which has abundant rain on it. And if the land produces a crop, then it's blessed. But if after all the rain, or if I could put it this way, after being enlightened and exposed, being witnesses, being taught, being astounded, and the land still produces thorns, it's near to being cursed and will be burned. It's useless. So what's the solution to a hard heart? You stop avoiding Christ, stop fooling yourself, stop waiting. What does this have to do with the doctrine of election? The doctrine of election, somebody asked the question last week, should we try to explain to the unbeliever the doctrine of election? I don't think that's necessary. You explain to them, you need to run to Christ. 
And once they get saved, you can say, you know what the Bible says? That you ran to Christ because that was his will. And he drew you. Not one Christian ever has ever said, oh, I got fooled. No, we're grateful and thankful for that. I, I want to drive this nail home just one more, in one more way. Jesus explained in a parable that if someone has all the spiritual truth available to them and yet rejects the gospel, they won't even be convinced if someone came back from the grave to tell them. They would never be convinced. And I just want to read this parable to you. And it's from Luke chapter 16. You can follow along if you'd like, but I'm just going to read it. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. And Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is very prophetic, isn't it? Because now there is someone who has risen from the dead that says, avoid hell and go to heaven. And that is Christ himself. And so if they have the word of God, they won't believe it. They will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. So what does that mean for us? It means that I, for, for me as a, as a pastor, I never take it for granted that every person seated in this room is saved. And I will preach the gospel to my dying day in hopes that, that some might have the scales drop from their eyes and say, I've been religious for a long time. I've been a member here. I fooled all the elders. My, my, my testimony was good enough to get into the baptistry. I know for a fact I have baptized people who then later have, have rejected the faith. But I take comfort that God knew that even if I didn't. So what does it mean for you? It means that 2 Corinthians 13, 5 is not ever a bad exercise. Examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you be in the faith. Wouldn't you rather... Wouldn't you rather do that 10,000 times and go to heaven? Now, that's not to take away assurance of salvation. We need to have assurance of salvation. But if you're living a life that is fruitless and you're living a life that is, it is pushing away from God, if you're living a life that is, is saying to the Lord, I like some of your word, if you're living a life that's not pursuing Christ, is not in love with his church, absolutely delighted with the things of God, 
then you need to examine yourselves. You need to test yourselves to see if you're in the faith because the tree is a little bare of fruit. What does it also mean for us as, as those who are sharing faith with others? I think there needs to be a sense of urgency. I have no problem telling an unbeliever, did you know that the Bible says there will be a last time you're allowed to hear the gospel and believe? That's a, I, I've, I've seen eyebrows go up. Yeah, you're right. The, the Bible says that you will not just go to your deathbed and say, okay, now I, I'm going to come to faith in God. You might spend the last 50 years of your life already in a position that you will never, can never be saved, according to Hebrews 10. That's a pretty sobering message, but it's the truth, right? And that's the most loving thing we can give. So what does this have to do with the doctrine of election? We praise God for election, but we also make certain that human responsibility is very real and it is, is absolutely imperative. So I hope that's helpful. We'll, we'll never see those two train tracks cross. In heaven, we'll have the giant aha of the century uh, when we understand that. God chooses those who will be saved, but those who will be saved have a responsibility to exercise saving faith. So those two exist together. Well, let's pray and then we'll be done for this morning. Thank you, Father, for this word is so clear, so abundantly cutting. As Hebrews 4 says, that the... the The word of God is a double-edged sword. It cuts to the bone. It separates that which is wicked from that which is good. It it separates truth from lies. And so, Lord, I, I thank you for Hebrews 6. What a sober warning to us. But how encouraging, Lord. Because we also know from Romans 8 that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And we look at those five resources and while they do not directly describe Christians, we are thankful that for those who know Christ, we have come all the way and all five of those things go all the way to the truth that's embedded in them. That we have tasted of the Holy Spirit and we have received the Holy Spirit. We have not just been associated with Him, we have been indwelt by Him. And we have heard the good word of God and we have eaten it, not just tasted, we have loved the word and we have been changed and transformed by it. And all those other truths that were presented as as going halfway to the truth. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation. We thank you that in love he predestined those. Lord, we're so grateful to you for our salvation. We're thankful to you for the cross and your ultimate eternal mysterious, unfathomable wisdom in salvation. Lord, I pray that these words will be encouraging to our hearts and we pray in Christ's name, amen.